In John chapter 8 and verse 25, Jesus is in the middle of being questioned by religious leaders and by lots of people who have traveled to Jerusalem, and they ask him this question, who are you? That's not the first time they've asked him this, but they really want to know, who are you? Like, who do you say that you are? Well, we know who you say you are, but really, who are you? That's a good question. That's a good question maybe that we should ask ourselves, a question that maybe you've wrestled with before in your own life. Maybe you've thought to yourself, who am I really? Like, who am I, who am I going to be? Who am I becoming? Who, who am I? Um, that's a good question, I think. It's a good question to ponder over. As you think about who you are, maybe you've thought there's times in your life where you've been told that you look like someone else. Uh, there's a word for it. It's this word doppelganger. Ever heard of the word doppelganger? Okay, it's a good word. If you don't normally use it in, in a normal everyday uh, conversation, you should start using it. Drop out the, the word doppelganger and see how someone responds to you this week. Uh, but growing up, my younger brother, about four years younger than me, when he was elementary age, uh, they would come home from school, he and his friends, and they were so excited because they would tell us they would receive daily visits at their school from a very famous person. Uh, they called him Walker, Texas Ranger. His real name is Chuck Norris. And they would say, Chuck Norris was at our school today. Or they'd call him Walker, Texas Ranger. And they were so excited. And none of the adults were brave enough uh, to break it to them that that's not Chuck Norris. That's their friend Paul's dad. He just happens to look like Chuck Norris. But they thought it was him. In fact, he did look like so much like Chuck Norris. He, uh, he got to play a body double one time in the episode of Walker, Texas Ranger. He was on a, a stretcher, and they carted him out. So there's his claim to fame. So maybe they weren't too far off. He did play Walker, Texas Ranger one time. But they saw him, and that's who they thought he was. And their friend Paul, their dad, he did look like him. But never did he think, I am Chuck Norris. He just knew, I'm the funny guy that kind of looks like him. So maybe you've been told you look like someone, or maybe someone mistakes you and thinks that you are someone else. Throughout Jesus' life, he was told by several different people who they thought he was. At one point, Jesus asks his disciples, who do the people say that I am? Peter speaks up, and Peter said, some say you're Elijah, some say you're Jeremiah, others say you're just one of the prophets. And then Peter speaks up and he says, but I think you're the Messiah. And he speaks for the rest of the disciples. But you look at other people. Some people looked at Jesus and they said, you're a fraud. You're not the Messiah. You're not who you think you are. You're just a fraud. Others looked at Jesus, religious leaders, and they said, you are in partnership with Beelzebub by the prince of demons. That's who you are. So imagine being told by countless groups of people, who they think that you are. Eventually, that might get to you. You know, eventually you might go crazy, but Jesus never lost his cool. Like it never rattled him. Jesus never got on Facebook and went on a rant about how all these people are talking about him. You know, he was very secure in who he was. So when they ask him this question, who are you? Jesus knew exactly who he was, and that was never a problem for him in his ministry. In John chapter 6, 7, and 8, if you, if you have a copy of the New Testament, you want to turn over there. Uh, we're mainly going to be in chapter 7 and 8 this morning, but we're going to start in chapter 6. I titled this section, The Identity Interrogation. 
Because you'll see over and over, I'm going to just span over several passages, and you're going to see that Jesus is in question. His identity is in question. And you'll see all the different times that different groups of people ask him who he is or claim that they think they know who he is. But in chapter 6, Jesus has fed a large group of people. Uh, They want to force him to become king in chapter 6, verse 15. So he has to slip away from them. The crowd comes again, and Jesus basically says, you're following me because you want free food. And he tells them, I am the bread of life. He uses this as a teaching opportunity. I'm the bread of life that's come down from heaven. And look at chapter 6 and verse 42. They were saying, is this not Jesus? The son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he say, I have come down from heaven? So he makes a claim about who he is, but then he has a group of people saying, that can't be who you are. We know who your parents are. We know your mom and dad. Like, we know where you're from. You're not from heaven. Why are you claiming that? In John chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, uh, Jesus went about in Galilee. Look at verse 1. He did not wish to go in Judea because the Jews were looking for an opportunity to kill him. So he knows his life is in danger. He's waiting for the right time for the cross. He knows what's going to happen, but it wasn't time yet. Now, the Jewish festival of booths or tabernacles was near. This is one of the major feasts on the Hebrew calendar where thousands of pilgrims would travel to Jerusalem for a time, a week of worship and praise and going to the temple. And so Jesus's family was getting ready to travel there, travel south to Judea, to Jerusalem. So his brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples also may see the works you're doing. For no one who wants to be widely known acts in secret. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. So his brothers are highlighting the fact that most people need and want and desire worldly affirmation. They're saying, if you want to be known in public, if you have this public ministry, then go to the place where everybody's going to be in Jerusalem and show yourself. But then John tells us in parentheses in verse 5, for not even his brothers believed in him. So even his own earthly brothers were mocking him about his identity. We know you. We grew up with you. Maybe there was something special about him, but he can't be this person, can he? Now later his brothers will believe in him, but here in chapter 7 they seem to be mocking him. Look at chapter 7, verses 12 and 13. So Jesus winds up going to Jerusalem. He goes on his own time. He's in Jerusalem, chapter 7, verse 12. There was... Considerable complaining about him among the crowds. While some were saying, he's a good man. Others were saying, no, he deceives the crowd. Yet no one would speak openly about him for fear of the Jews. So imagine being in Jesus' shoes. You travel to Jerusalem. There's all these people there. And if you're just listening, you're hearing whispers, rumors about you. Maybe you've heard rumors about yourself before. Maybe they've come back around to you and you hear what people are whispering about you and usually that doesn't feel too nice. Your first instinct is to want to go clear it up and and get to the root of whoever it is that's spreading rumors about you. And here Jesus comes and they're whispering about him. And some people are saying, no, he's a good man. Look at what he's doing. But other people are saying, no, he's a liar. He deceives people. He's not who he says. But they kind of kept quiet about it. Look at chapter 7, verse 15, this is the middle of the festival. Jesus is in the 
temple teaching. The Jews were astonished at his teaching, saying, how does this man have such learning when he's never been taught? So not only are they questioning his identity, but they're saying, how can he stand up here and teach? And he's not gone through the proper training. He's this, as I've said before, an unorthodox rabbi. Like they're wanting to know, what school did he go to? What was his GPA, right? Did he go to the right school? Did he get the right degree? What gives him the right to stand in the temple and teach? And why are all these people listening? Why is he teaching with such authority? Look at chapter 7, verse 25 through 27. Now some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, Is not this the man whom they're trying to kill? And here he is speaking openly, but they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Messiah? Is this really him? Have they concluded this? Yet we know where this man is from. But when the Messiah comes, no one will know where he is from. This is the crowd saying this. So they're saying, maybe some think that he really is the Messiah, but it can't be because we know this guy. He has an accent. He sounds like a Galilean. We know who this guy is. We know where he's from. But I thought when the Messiah comes, we won't know where he's from. So you see all this questioning and interrogating the identity of who Jesus is. And they try to define Jesus. And sometimes the world will try to do that for you. It will try to tell you who you are rather than finding your identity in Christ. Look at chapter 7, verse 31. Yet many in the crowd believed in him and were saying, When the Messiah comes, will he do more signs than this man has done? Throughout the Gospel of John, John likes this word signs. It's like a miracle or, or something pointing to, to God, pointing to the fact that Jesus comes from God. In John chapter 2, this famous story, Jesus at a wedding, because of the request of his mother, he turns water into wine, and John tells us that was the first of many signs. And throughout John's Gospel, we see that Jesus not only turns water into wine, but he can heal people. He can walk on water, he can multiply food, he can cast out demons. These are all signs. He's done some amazing things, but now they're saying, okay, we see the signs, but shouldn't he do more than this? Like, is this enough? Are these enough signs? We want to see more, okay? So now they're questioning him on that. Look at chapter 7 and verse 40 through 43. When Jesus is still teaching, and when they heard these words, some in the crowd said... This is really the prophet. Others said, this is the Messiah. But some asked, surely the Messiah does not come from Galilee, does he? Has not Scripture said the Messiah is descended from David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David lived? So there was division in the crowd because of him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. So now because of this questioning... This problem with the identity of Jesus, the crowds are divided. Some are saying, we know he's from Galilee because he grew up in Galilee. But little do they know, he was actually born in Bethlehem. And they're saying, wait a minute, we thought the Messiah came from Bethlehem. So earlier, the crowd's saying, we don't know where he's going to come from. Now they're saying he's supposed to come from Bethlehem. But either way, they're confused because they're saying, we don't think that Jesus comes from the right place. So he can't be who he says he is. And they're divided. And they're going to have a meeting about it. A man named Nicodemus is going to stand up and somewhat defend Jesus. And they're going to mock Nicodemus and say, are you from Galilee also? And then in chapter 8, verses 1 through 11, uh, we have this famous story about this woman. And some of your 
copies of the text may tell you that this was not found in the early manuscripts, so that you have that kind of side note in there. Some believe it, it was here. Some believe that someone added it in later. Some believe it should have gone in a different spot. Now, there's some, a, a pretty good argument that this story belongs right here because chapter 8 starts with this crowd, these religious leaders wanting to stone this woman, and then chapter 8 ends with them wanting to stone Jesus. So it's the Feast of Tabernacles. Thousands of people in Jerusalem. Uh, lots of people have probably set up tents around the city and they find this woman who woke up in the wrong tent. And they brought her to the temple where Jesus was and they threw her to humiliate her and they said, the law of Moses says that we should stone this woman. She's an adulterous woman. And if you know the story, what does Jesus do? He stoops down in the ground and he writes in the dirt. People are always puzzled. What was Jesus writing? But it kind of takes some of the attention off of that woman and onto Jesus. And then eventually he'll speak and he'll say, yeah, if you're without sin, go ahead and throw that first stone. And if I was the woman at that point, I'd be like, no, don't say that. Because what if somebody actually threw one? But it worked because slowly, one by one, they start dropping their stones because they realize, okay, we're all sinners. They leave. Jesus is still drawing in the dirt. And then he gets up and he said, where are they? Has no one left to condemn you? She said, no. And he said, well, neither do I, but go and leave your life of sin. It's a great story. And a lot of times when we look at the story, you know, it has to do with Jesus, but we're kind of looking at it from this woman's perspective. But here in context in these chapters, this story is really about Jesus. It wasn't about the woman to begin with. They were just using her as bait because they're trying to trap Jesus. They're still interrogating him on his identity, on who he is. And so what I really want to focus on is this response here in chapter 8, verse 12 through 14. And really, verse 14 is going to be the key text for the remainder of the lesson. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. It's a pretty bold claim. To claim something like that, you have to be pretty secure in who you are, in your identity. So he claims this, and the Pharisees said... You're testifying on your own behalf. Your testimony is not valid. Like you, it means nothing, they say. What you're saying means nothing, or they want it to mean nothing. And look at what he says in verse 14. Even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid, and here's why. Because I know where I've come from, and I know where I'm going. He says that, and he says, you do not know where I've come from or where I'm going. So that right there is what I want to hone in on for a few minutes. He says, I know where I've come from, and I know where I'm going. Okay, those are two markers that I believe were very important in Jesus' life. That helped solidify and secure him in his identity under God's name. He said, I know where I've come from. When he says that, he's not just referring to Nazareth or Bethlehem. That's not what he's referring to when he says, I know where I've come from. He's, he knows that he has come from the Father. He's come from eternity. He's come from heaven. But as followers of Christ, as a disciple of Jesus, trying to imitate him, this is probably something that would be very healthy for us to discover about ourselves. Is where have we come from? And if you were to ask yourself that question... That's more than just saying, oh, where did I grow up? What town did I grow up in? What school did I go to? But where have you come from in the sense of why are you the way that you are? Why do you 
behave the way that you do? Why do you think the way that you think? Why do you respond to people the way that you respond to them? A lot of that stems from where you've come from. Uh, A lot of counselors. If if you went to see a counselor, and, and that's a great thing to do. There's nothing wrong with that. We should probably all do that at some point. But there's a lot of counselors who believe in what's called family systems theory. And if you have a problem, if you're upset with something, if your anxiety is ruining your life and depression, counselors will dig deep. And they'll ask a lot of questions, and they're going to try to take you back. Not all counselors will do this, but a lot of them will. They'll try to take you back to something from maybe your childhood, something from your upbringing, because what a lot of people believe is the way we're raised and the people that we're surrounded by affects us more than we realize. And sometimes there's hurts and there's pains and there's things that happen growing up that we just kind of repress. But that affects how we behave and how we act. That's where we've come from. Uh, when I graduated high school, I went and worked at Camp Deera in that summer. I came home after the summer was over, so it was around this time. I packed up the rest of my stuff, and I got ready to go to Abilene for college. As I was loading up my car, getting ready to leave, my, my mom was very emotional. Uh, she shed a lot of tears. She hugged me several times. And, you know, I'm this kind of weird 18-year-old. I'm like, Mom, calm down. It's not that big of a deal. I was really just excited. My dad, you just have to know him. He has a dry sense of humor, doesn't show his emotions a lot. He walked up to me in this big emotional moment from my mom And he shook my hand and he said, we've enjoyed having you. You're on your own now. And then sent me on my own. And and in a lot of ways, he was not kidding because student loans don't pay themselves back. But, you know, you're on your own now. It was his way of kind of uh, helping the situation, I think, a little bit. But I think back to that day because I left and I went to Abilene. Okay, that was that part of my life, and now I'm starting a new chapter in my life, and I'm going to college, and then I graduate, then I go to the next step. And I have a tendency to just throw myself into whatever it is that I'm doing, and it's almost like whatever has gone on, whatever has shaped me and been formative in my past, I don't reflect on it till later on. So when I was working on uh, some graduate work, I took this family ministry class, we did this thing called a genogram, where we looked at our family history and and different people have been influential in our lives, whether it's parents or siblings or aunts and uncles, grandparents, just other adult figures, friends. And we had to define our relationship, and then we had to write this self-reflection paper about it. And as I did that, there was a lot of things that kind of emotions that came up to the surface. Things that I had ignored, things about myself that helped me understand why I am the way that I am, things that I had just pushed aside. For many years. But doing that exercise helped me realize this is where I've come from. Not just this is the town I grew up in, but this is why I am the way that I am. This has shaped me, has shaped my thoughts. And your thoughts are very important for your actions. Knowing where you've come from. Jesus says to the Pharisees, and all this hostility and all this anger and all this questioning, he says, it's okay. Because I know where I've come from. And knowing that about yourself is very important. I have a good friend who, if you sit down and talked with him, he would have no shame in telling you this, but he would tell you, I'm an alcoholic. And he also says, I've experimented with some other things in my life. I've spent time in jail. I've paid the penalty. And he's very old. He doesn't hide that. 
And he doesn't hide that because he knows who he's becoming. In fact, this guy, without telling you his name, although he told me I could share his story, he's one of the most enthusiastic disciples of Jesus I've ever met. He inspires me. But I think one of the reasons why he is so focused and so driven and so joyful in Christ is because he knows where he's come from. He knows his past. He knows how to name that, whether it's mistakes he's made in the past or things that have happened to him. He knows how to identify that. And in doing so, that frees him to help know who he's becoming. He knows not only where he's come from, but he knows where he's going. So here's a couple of quotes that may help you understand this. Your past may explain you, but it doesn't excuse you. We all have a past. Nobody's perfect. We've all had things that have happened to us or decisions we've made that maybe we're not proud of, that we just hope that everyone will forget. We have a past, and that explains who we are. That's where we've come from. But it doesn't excuse you. Your past is not a crutch to prevent you from who you're becoming. Or another way of putting it, someone put this on Twitter, and I don't know who to give credit to, but I love this quote, and I think it fits. Don't let who you were talk you out of who you're becoming. Name your past. Know who you were and why you are the way that you are, but that doesn't have to define who you're becoming. And Jesus says, I know where I've come from, in chapter 8, verse 14, but he also says, I know where I'm going. He says, I know where I'm headed. Not only does he know those markers, that marker of knowing where I've come from, but he knows where he's going. This means Jesus lived with purpose and intention. Jesus lived with more intentionality than anyone I've ever known. He had a vision for his life. He knew where he was headed. He knew what was going to happen, how it was going to end. But more than that, he knew what he was teaching. How he was shaping his disciples. He did everything he did very purposefully. And he did that because he had this vision in mind. He knew where he was, where he was going, where he was headed. You know, this church here at Pine Tree, our vision is to make mature and multiply faithful followers of Christ. And you've heard that said. You see it on paper. And here in the next month or two, we're going to get very specific with how that may look in this church. But if you've ever questioned, well, why do we have a vision? Well, I think we have a vision because Jesus had a vision. And we're followers of Jesus. And we should live with purpose. We should live with intention, just like Jesus did. Not only as a church... But just think about, for those of you who are married, think about your marriage. If you were to write out, sit down with your spouse and say, what do, we, what do we want our relationship to look like 10 years from now or 20 years from now? And what would you write out? Lord willing, we're still here. What kind of relationship do you want to have? Well, you'd probably, you probably wouldn't say, well, I want to be unhappy and I want us to grow apart from each other. More than likely, you're going to say, Yeah, I want our relationship to thrive. I want us to be happy. I want us to be closer together. And as Christians, you might say, I want us as a couple to make a difference, to make an impact on this church and for the kingdom of God. Well, if that's what you want, if you want your relationship to thrive, but every night you go into separate rooms and watch separate TVs and go to bed and the communication is growing apart, then if what you want to become that's not reflecting that in the way that you're acting. So if that's what you want to become, then spend time together. Go on dates. 
Pray together, worship together, study God's Word. You know, do things together, go on a mission trip together. You do those things so that your relationship can grow. That doesn't mean it's going to be perfect, but if you have a vision in mind on who you want to become, you live with intention, you live on purpose. It's the same thing with those who are raising kids. Someone asked me, what do you want for your kids 10 years from now? Lord willing, 20 years from now. My first answer is, I want my kids to just be in love with Jesus. Like, that's what I want. If I could pass on anything to them, that's what I would want for them, for them to be faithful followers of Christ. And I'd also like to have a good relationship with them. You know, Lord willing, we're all still here. Okay, if that's what I want out of my kids, then what am I doing now to get there? Do I know where I'm going with them? Am I spending time with them, praying, worshiping on a regular, consistent basis with them, placing the right priorities and modeling it in front of them? Am I doing that? Do I know where I'm going? Am I living on purpose, living with intention? It's the same for our church, with with your marriage. It's the same with raising kids. It's the same for you as an individual, no matter where you're at in your life. Who are you becoming? Who do you want to become? Do you know where you're going? Do you know where you're headed? As we follow Christ, Jesus said, not only do I know where I've come from, chapter 8, verse 14, but he said, I know where I'm going. Look at John chapter 13. This will be the last text we'll look at this morning. In John chapter 13, this is right up at the end of his life. Uh, John chapter 13, verse 1 and 2, he tells us that Jesus knows the time is here. He's about to return to the Father. He knows that Satan has worked on the heart of Judas, and Judas is about to betray him. And we know that chapter 13 is a story where Jesus washes his disciples' feet. He acts as a servant. You know, Peter's like, you can't do this. And, and then, you know, you know the story from there. Jesus sets the pattern. He sets the example. But I think something very important happens in verse 3 that maybe we overlook sometimes. There's three things that he says in verse 3. The first one, he says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands... This word, all things, is important. If you have an NIV or another translation, it might say Jesus knew that the Father had put all things in his power. So Jesus has all the power, basically, essentially. He could do whatever he wants. All things have been given to him from the Father, and this is what he chooses to do with all the power. To act as a servant, to wash feet, And to intentionally walk to his death, to the cross. But not only does John tell us that Jesus knew that, he came to that realization. But look at what else he says in verse 3. He knew that he had come from God and that he was going to God. Jesus knew where he had come from and he knew where he was going. And because of those two things, I think that gave him that security in who he was. No matter how much he was questioned, no matter how many people tried to get under his skin and maybe confuse him, maybe throw him off the path he was headed on, he never was rattled. He never was thrown off the path he was headed on. He knew exactly where he was going, and he knew where he had come from. Uh, there's a, this picture here that I'm about to show you. is a guy named Bart Millard. He is the lead singer of a band called Mercy Me. You've probably heard of this band before. Uh, Bart Millard is actually from Greenville, Texas, where I grew up. So there's 
We have Chuck Norris and this guy. So that's our claim to fame right there. Um, when he was 19, before he became famous, as a 19-year-old, he lost his dad. His dad passed away. And he said around that time, around visitation, funeral, there was a lot of people from their church that wanted to comfort him. So they would say things like, God was just ready to take him. He's in a better place now. And although those things were meant to comfort him, he said, as a 19-year-old, it didn't bring much comfort. Those words didn't really help him, but someone advised him, why don't you start journaling? Journal your thoughts. Maybe that'll help you. So he did that for a time during the grieving process and then set it aside. And then he said about nine years later, he pulled that journal back out and he was reading back over it. I imagine in his late 20s, that's a pretty emotional experience, kind of reliving some of that. But he would write out every time some adult would tell him he's in a better place now, God was ready to take him. In the margins, he would write, I can only imagine. So he reads through his journal, sets the journal aside, pulls out a scratch sheet of paper, and within five minutes he's written out the lyrics to this song, I can only imagine, which is a song that probably you've heard of. Millions of people have heard of this song. And later that song became the song of the year, and then by some it was voted song of the decade. But what happens in the lyrics of this song is that God used where he had come from, God used his pain and his experiences to help people, help millions of people think about where they're going. God will use where you've come from to help you know where you're going. To name that about your past so that you can know where you're headed. And he can also use your past to help others think about where they're going. We've been in this series this month called Beyond Yourself. It's about being a part of the bigger picture, that we're contributing to something that hopefully will we'll live beyond our, our own short lives. And if we want to be a part of something that's bigger than ourselves, we have to know where we're going. And that's not just knowing where we're going today to eat or where we're going in the next few weeks, but knowing where we're headed with our lives, knowing who we're becoming. And this morning, we're going to sing this invitation song. This is an opportunity for you to reflect on that. Maybe there's some things in your past that you've ignored, and maybe you need to deal with that. Maybe today would be a good opportunity to find a shepherd in the back or scattered around the building, and you can sit down and talk with them. Or maybe you don't know where you're going. Maybe that's for a direction in your life or for eternity, and maybe today's a good day to think about going as well. Give me an opportunity to respond. We're going to ask that you stand and we're going to sing this song.